0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
1: From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. It's been an unprecedented election season. It's been the most unprecedented
2: and predictable. It's like 1968 all over again,
3: 1987. It's 2000 all over
2: again. Trump isn't Nixon, Trump isn't Reagan, Trump isn't George Wallace. You know, I think history is sort of repeating itself. I don't think history repeats itself. History repeats, next.
4: Welcome to the new Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Joanne Freeman. Nathan Connolly here. And this is Brian Bella. If you're new to the show, we'll tell you a bit about Backstory. Joanne, Brian, Nathan, and I are all historians. But really, keep listening. (laughs) Each week, (laughs) we pluck a headline from the news and
0: look at that topic through
4: three centuries of American history.
0: Now, most weeks, there'll be three hosts, with one of us rotating out, depending on the topic. So I'm actually going to rotate out this week, but I'll be back next week and many weeks to follow.
3: See ya, Joanne. All right,
1: bye-bye.
0: Ed, Nathan,
3: I'm going to kick off today's show by taking you back to a cold November night in Bismarck, North Dakota. Okay. It's 1989. It looks like a pretty ordinary scene. About 100 people are packed inside a hotel banquet room. Everyone is listening intently to the guest speakers up front, an East Coast couple named Frank and Deborah Popper. But if you take a closer look at the crowd, they're
5: upset, even hostile. Mm -hmm.
3: That's because the Poppers are presenting a pretty provocative academic theory.
5: You know, a lot of us here in North Dakota were offended to our very core.
3: This is Lauren Donovan, a reporter for the Bismarck Tribune. She had a bad cold when we reached her, but was kind enough to talk to us anyway. Back in 1989, she was a young editor at a local North Dakota newspaper. That night, she sat on a panel assembled to refute the Poppers and their offensive idea.
5: When it was my turn to talk about Frank and Deborah Popper, I remember being pleased that I had been so clever to come up with the idea that, that their whole theory was Poppercock.
1: And I guess in that part of the country, them's fighting words.
5: (laughs) And I remember looking over at Mr. Popper, and he absolutely flinched. And uh, I remember feeling like, ha. It was very emotional for me. And so uh, I wasn't interested in examining any merits of their theory. I was only interested in, in giving them a piece of my mind.
4: So, Brian, I'm curious, What was making people in this room so angry?
3: Ed, not just the people in this room. The Pompers were saying something that was deeply threatening to people across the Great Plains. And this story reflects a tension we hear a lot about these days
6: data and the numbers do show a clear rural urban divide. There is an urban rural divide that we saw in this election.
1: This urban rural divide. Mm-hmm. You look at the divide, the big cities tend to go more for the Democrats and the rural areas, more for the Republicans. Well, that's an
6: old division in American politics.
1: Today on Backstory, we're going to look into the history of tensions between urban and rural people. If you listen to the news, these two parts of the population aren't even on
3: speaking terms. They don't see eye to eye on politics or even basic
1: facts. We'll hear how those disagreements go back to the country's very founding. We'll also show how rural voters have often had an outsized voice in American politics.
3: And we'll dive into that story about the Poppers nearly 30 years ago, the surprising outcome, and the lessons for today. Okay, so so going back to that cold night in Bismarck, who were the Poppers? Nathan, I'm going to let them introduce themselves.
6: My name is Frank Popper. I'm a professor at Rutgers, and I'm here with my wife.
0: And I'm Deborah Popper, and I am now Professor Emerita, and the two of us are also visiting professors at Princeton. Which we've been visiting for 15 years <laughs>
5: back.
3: <laughs> back in the late 1980s, the New Jersey couple was looking at demographic data across the Great Plains. This is the arid, sparsely populated midsection of the country that spans about 500,000 square miles from North Dakota and Montana all the way down to Texas and New Mexico. At the time, the region was in an economic freefall. Family farms were going bankrupt. There was a severe drought, and jobs were disappearing. The Poppers pointed out that tens of thousands of residents, especially young people, were leaving the Great Plains. The region was basically emptying out. So w- were their numbers right? Was it becoming depopulated? Their numbers were right. The Poppers could see that the plains was actually in the middle of its
6: third cycle
3: of severe depopulation.
6: The Great Plains has been losing population for, in fact, well over a century. So back in New Jersey, the Poppers came up with a solution. And that's the Buffalo Commons.
3: Sounds pretty benign, right? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, the basic idea of the Buffalo Commons was this. Turn big chunks of the Great Plains, nearly a quarter of the region, into something like a nature reserve. One where native grasses and native species, including buffalo would return and replace farms and ranches.
0: The Buffalo Commons was more metaphor rather than this is what must happen. In essence, it's thinking about how you could live more lightly on the land.
3: The Poppers laid out their vision in the December 1987 edition of Planning Magazine. I think you got yours early this year. Yeah, right? I'll
4: only read it for the article. So.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you may be laughing now, but they gave their article a gloomy title. Great Plains, from dust to dust. Here's Deborah reading.
0: Most of the Great Plains will become what all of the United States once was, a vast landmass largely empty and unexploited.
6: I, I expected the article to go, we expected the article, I think I can speak for Deborah here, to go off into the, the ether and never reappear again. We've all been there. <laughs> yes. Uh, some of us are there permanently, in fact. Uh, <laughs> But to our great surprise, people read it. Politicians read it. And
3: most importantly, people on the Great Plains read it. And those who didn't actually read it heard about the Popper's proposal. Angry letters to the editor poured into the magazine. Debra and Frank soon started getting hostile phone calls.
6: Saying we, don't, we know nothing. Uh, we've been called various ways, this is a quote. Socialite socialists.
0: Where are you putting the fence? Would be another one. You know, so is my house on which, which side, side of the fence right. is my house on? A woman from Coldwater, Kansas called me up,
6: said she was from the local paper, and her first question was, How many of you are there in this conspiracy? <laughs> and, and
1: where was the reporter you mentioned, Lauren Donovan, during all this?
5: We were not, you know, at all excited about the idea that a pair of sociologists from East Coast had proposed that perhaps the best land use for North Dakota and the Great Plains at that time was to become a giant preserve for buffalo and other wildlife.
6: Some people reacted to it as if we wanted to create a giant national park. Often they misinterpreted it. We They thought, for example, we were calling for a forcible uh, expropriation scheme where everybody would be out by Tuesday. Which you did not call for
0: We, we in the didn't article. feel we called for it. Um, what does that and, mean, you didn't and, and feel we you didn't, called for I it? Mean, there is this, maybe you could call it a sort of weasel line. If these trends continue then what you've seen in the past is people leaving. If they keep leaving and they keep leaving and they keep leaving, then what happens? Rather than push them out. Which, as I look back, maybe we should have stressed more strongly.
3: To be fair, the Poppers did write the Buffalo Commons would become the ultimate
4: national park. That had a sting. And that's not really crazy when you think about it. In the 1930s, the Shenandoah National Park was created by driving away several hundred families that had lived there for a long time. And let's don't forget, too, that the Great Plains themselves had been freed for white settlement by the dispossession of Native Americans. Yeah, they
3: certainly felt they had some basis to be concerned, which makes what happened next even more surprising. The poppers began getting invitations to come visit and speak. From all sorts of groups journalists, farming groups. So, this is in the plains. In the plains. plains. Yeah. So, they just went out there? That's right. You might ask why. Well, to be frank, they were
6: amazed that anybody took their writing seriously. I personally was delighted to see some academic work actually getting a real-life, practical response from real people. There would be the kind of ongoing public dialogue that schools of public policy are supposed to lead to and stimulate and so on. Over the next few years, the Poppers made
3: dozens of trips to the region. They traveled to all ten Great Plains states. Each visit followed a standard script, The couple would show up at a high school auditorium or hotel conference room. They'd take their seats in the front of the room and explain the Buffalo Commons theory.
1: It all sounds pretty tame, I guess. Not exactly.
0: It's going on a stage, and, and, and we really were on a stage, and talking to people that you know have many doubts about you.
3: Local officials and journalists would challenge them. Then it was the audience's
6: turn. Residents who, in some cases, will come up and tell you, because they're lovely people, I drove 300 miles to hear you, and you're still full of nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) And is
0: nonsense the word they used?
6: Uh, Sometimes they were stronger.
0: I remember a specific incident um, of a farmer coming up to Frank with some wheat in his hands and saying, "Do you know what this is? Do you even know what this is?" And you know, a, a person who was clearly had put his life into growing wheat. And and indeed, I appreciate that. But how can you talk about my community in this way um, when I am, am growing this for you?
3: Sometimes a couple even had to be escorted by local officials.
0: I would say that a tremendous... Number of our appearances, there was definitely security, you know, local security provided um, because the hosts would be a bit nervous about what was, you know, how the audience was going to respond.
3: Lauren Donovan says the locals didn't just resent what the poppers were saying. They also resented the poppers' attitude as if these professors from New Jersey knew what was best.
5: There was this giant... Gap, reality gap between the kind of people we are and the kind of people they are. And what kind of people are they? Well, they're, you know, they're East Coast academics. You know, from the North Dakota perspective, it's not like we don't respect academics, but on the other hand, that academic theory just seems so removed from the manure in the bottom of a cattle truck. (laughs) <laughs> or, or the
3: I don't know. I've had a lot of people call my academic theories uh, yeah. manure in the bottom of a cattle truck. Yes.
5: Well, you, well, maybe that was a pretty good, um, pretty good description there. But I mean, it was just—it's just you know—you can hardly even put them on the same page.
3: But at the bottom of all of these exchanges was something more primal. It was fear. Local residents believed that these two East Coast academics—believe it or not actually had the power to evict people from their land.
1: Aren't they kind of overreacting? I mean, just a little bit?
5: If you were a North Dakotan, you would understand, first of all, we are sort of embarrassed about our standing in the country, especially 30 years ago. Our self-respect meter was not all that high. You know, we were out here in the middle of nowhere and kind of that big flyover country.
3: Donovan was raised in a small prairie town in North Dakota called Mott,
5: and if you uh, look it up on the map, it says, Moth, the spot that God forgot. <laughs> but we always thought it was more apt to say There is a bit of an that,
3: inferiority complex yeah, there, well, Lauren.
5: That's exactly the word I've been searching for. Thank you. But we like to say it's Moth, the spot where the girls are hot. But, <laughs> and the boys are not.
3: She grew up in a large family on their grandparents' homestead.
5: And I grew up in a family of 12 children in a small town that flourished, you know, as much as a a prairie town can can flourish. And at, at the peak of our little town's history, we had 1,500 people who lived there.
3: Every one of her siblings moved away. She's the only one who stayed in North Dakota.
5: My little hometown now continues to diminish every year. And so right now, there's probably less than 700 people.
3: And that, she says, is why the paupers made people so
5: angry. Because of the possibility that what they were proposing really would be the end of our story. I mean, I think that there was, in those years, a bad drought, struggling agriculture, a population that continued to falter, small towns that were emptying out. We were we were closing schools. We were, um, you know, churches, <laughs> you name it. We were closing it in North Dakota. And so it wasn't like it wasn't like this didn't have that ring of possibility.
3: So it's the very fact that they were right about a lot of the demographic trends that made the proposed solution such a threat,
5: right? I think that's exactly right. That they they nailed what was happening to us uh, quite accurately. But this is land that we owned. This is land that we that we nourished. We farmed. We ranched. And sure, it might be getting emptier by the minute, but but it was our home.
3: There's one more aspect of the Popper's proposal that really rubbed people the wrong way. In your article. You said that the settlement of the Plains was, quote, the greatest agricultural and environmental mistake in American history, end quote. Is that something that you regret saying? No. No.
6: You don't think that was the problem? I don't think that—well, yeah, it was a problem. But I was—I and we were prepared to defend it, and I'd stick
5: with that today. Well, you know, uh, there's some truth to that and some of the truth is in the farming practices that that have proven to be uh, not the best practices for the Great Plains, but we felt like survivors in a way. How could we feel then that all of us were a mistake? I, I've got to say, and this is something I've only
6: realized recently, if the roles were reversed, I'd be against us. Why? Because those people were standing up for something strong and patriotic and American, and they saw it that way, and they saw us as just the opposite.
0: I don't know if I can let that stand. I I can't let that stand because, you know, I— I'm standing tall for my part of the country where it's okay that my ancestors made mistakes. They did make mistakes, and I'm allowed to say it. Um, I'm allowed to have them tell me to be quiet, but, you know, you, you, you say what you see and what you think, and that's all right, and that's patriotic.
3: Thirty years have passed since the poppers published their controversial article. Since then a few areas in the Great Plains have actually bounced back. North Dakota, for example, has experienced an oil boom. But for the most part, the Great Plains has continued to lose population. I asked the poppers what, if anything, they learned from the whole exchange.
0: We were a way to get a conversation that the community needed. And yet there was both a hesitancy to to talk about the things and also lots of disagreements. Everybody has their own idea of what needed to be done or who was at fault. And so whenever they would bring us in, there was one thing they knew people could agree upon. They didn't like us. We were a public service of a
6: certain perverse kind. We could mobilize people against us. (laughs) They could agree. We had it wrong.
5: Let's go find it right. And guess what?
3: Lauren Donovan agrees.
5: We have to thank them when we look back for holding up a mirror. It wasn't like we were seeing somebody we didn't recognize, but, but we, were, we needed to take a good hard look, and they helped.
3: But here's the real surprise. Local environmentalists and conservationists have started to embrace the Buffalo Commons as a viable idea. They're creating smaller versions of the commons throughout the plains, and Native American tribes are working hard to restore buffalo herds.
4: So it sounds as if the scholarship did what scholarship is supposed to do. It sort of advanced the conversation with some clearer understandings. Or got a couple of professors in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't think
3: that the scholarship ever was intended to shed light on the huge gaps in perception between urban types and rural types. But I actually think that it did more to enhance both sides' understanding of people who were quite different than themselves. Lauren Donovan wishes she'd been less suspicious of the poppers back then. She even called Frank and Deborah Popper a few
5: years ago and said, I am really sorry that I was such a, you know, immature uh, twit.
0: You know, when I, I go back and look at what we wrote, we were young and dumb. And they brought us in to teach us something. We kept going because we kept meeting interesting people and learning and learning and learning and being part of a discussion that mattered to people. It
5: must have been very interesting for Frank and Deborah Popper to, you know, come out from behind the, the numbers and the data and meet us. But they were brave, and they came out, and they spoke with us, and I admire them very much.
3: Thanks to Frank and Deborah Popper for sharing their story. Frank is a professor at Rutgers University. Deborah is Professor Emerita at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York. Thanks also to Lauren Donovan. She's a reporter for the Bismarck Tribune.
4: Coming up, we're going to talk about the origins of this feud between country and city people. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Nathan Ed.
3: I think you could hear in that last story a certain amount of reconciliation that occurred over time. But this tension between urban-rural is certainly a matter of very different perceptions on the part of each party. What I want to know from you is, is it just perception? Or are there real fundamental, maybe even structural, differences between urban populations and
1: rural populations that run throughout American history. Well, I think one of the critical kind of pillars of American identity is this notion that the country began as a kind of rural republic, right? But if you go back to the colonial period, um, it, it oftentimes makes more sense to think about early America as really being the hinterland of an urban Europe, right? I mean, particularly of London. Um, you have uh, goods and services moving between, you know, London and and, you know, places in Virginia and in Massachusetts. Um, So there's, from the very beginning, a kind of connection between urban life and what we would call kind of rural life in colonial America. Well, if that's the case, how do we get what
3: certainly seemed to me one of the fundamental divides, this debate between Hamilton and Jefferson, a more urban-looking, manufacturing political economy, and Jefferson's uh, really worshipping the rural yeoman farmer.
4: In many ways, it's a projection of what Nathan was talking about before in the sense that America imagines itself as a rural country from the beginning, even as it is actually pretty darn urban. And Mm. so if you imagine yourself as the rural hinterland to the corrupt English empire, Mm -hmm. then you emphasize your rural roots, you know, your your independence from these markets. Even as you're urbanizing. Exactly. That's right. So the hinterland, America becomes a lot more rural (laughs) before it becomes more urban, right? It expands across the north and the south into vast new areas, displacing American Indians and creating farms and plantations that are then flowing back into these cities
1: that they resent so much. So it sounds like you're drawing a distinction between the rural and say the wilderness. Yeah, the wilderness is where the American Indians live, Nathan. Uh, yeah.
4: and what makes the difference? No, white Americans realized that the Indians cultivated the landscape. They could see it with their own eyes, and they overran those villages and those that, that mm-hmm. landscape to take it. But mm-hmm. what they did not do was enclose it in fences. They didn't mark it off as rural areas that are bought and sold and so what becomes rural in the american imagination are places that are not cities but that are tied to the cities first of europe and now to ourselves so jefferson and hamilton are imagining different centers of the economy jefferson wants to focus on the place where things are grown to feed the cities Hamilton wants to focus on places where the food is being consumed, where the money being made, where manufacturing is being made. So they're both emphasizing productivity, but they're imagining different anchors of the economy.
1: And there's a certain kind of assumption that goes with that divide, right? That somehow the kind of corrupt bankers in America's right. city are, are leading the country down a potentially They're you know, dangerous They're not really road. making money. They're just right. skimming it
4: off <laughs> other people.
1: Absolutely. And that the independent kind of, you know, yeoman farmer or even the planter as a kind of like patriarch, a moral patriarch of, of the household are the the real heart of the country's well-being. Because they are making something out of nothing. They're
4: literally planting seeds in the soil right. and things that would not be there otherwise wise are growing, whereas bankers are just moving paper around. So, Nathan, you're saying that the
3: slave-holding planter was more productive than the banker?
1: Well, this is exactly the problem with that formulation, right? Because it's not as if the planter is making something out of nothing. It's that the slaves are actually working this land, right? And abolitionists who are throughout, you know, America's cities especially recognize this. And so they see, in fact, not a kind of moral, you know, planter, but the great evil, the great moral evil of the country, which could have been eradicated during the revolution and during the founding of the country, but wasn't because you had planters essentially writing the country's founding documents, right? So the moral divide between rural and urban really does get get heightened around this question of abolition and who, in fact, should be the ones who make the country's prosperity move? Should it be slave labor in places like Virginia or in Georgia, or should it be free labor in places like Pennsylvania and New York?
4: Yeah, that's an important distinction there, Nathan, is that the antidote the abolitionists imagine is not the city, however. It's the family farm in Mm. the north, right? And so there's a case where the moral Bonus points don't necessarily accrue to the people who are making the arguments, but rather they're projecting it onto a rural landscape that still has that Jeffersonian productivity on it. And the enemy of free farms is slavery. Think about Mm -hmm. what the Civil War is actually about. It's actually controlling the rural landscape. That's and right. so that's the important divide is that slavery obscures for a moment that urban-rural divide. But as soon as the war is over and slavery's destroyed, the urban-rural thing reasserts itself.
3: Mm-hmm. But surely by the time we get to the populist era and the farmers rise up and attack those bankers in the city, we've really got a real urban rural divide,
4: right? Eh? Yeah, and for those of you who may have forgotten who the populists were, they were the last unified effort on the part of rural interests to take America. In the 1890s, they grew up and tied together the farmers from the east and the west and the north and the south, and Republicans and Democrats, and said, you know who should be running the country? The people who feed the country. We are literally making less every year on what we grow, and the cities are growing rich on our at our expense. So, if you people want to see a real urban-rural divide in American politics, it's in the 1890s, and it's very explicitly urban and rural, and it's not unlike today. When people look around and they say, where's the majority of the population? Who controls most of America? It's the farmers. And yet those fat cats in the cities seem to be taking all the spoils of our work. Although the difference
3: would be is the nation was predominantly rural at the time, and
4: the economy was still largely driven
3: by agriculture.
4: Yeah, Brian, in their eyes, they were the people who actually made real things. The people they hated were people who just moved paper mm-hmm, around. Mm-hmm. So in the 1890s, the populists rise to enormous power, and it looks to them and to a lot of the countries that they're going to win the presidency. But they don't, and they lose. And after they lose, then they're, they're basically seen as rubes and hicks, they're seen as the places where people just can't keep up with the rapidly changing world. So here's my question. Yeah?
3: Is this urban-rural divide real, or is it simply a way that America, from its very founding, has authorized a legitimate discussion of differences, a discussion that might not be as legitimate as as pitting white people against brown people, as pitting free labor against slavery. Is this a convenient way that Americans have always talked about some of their differences?
1: Well, I think that there's a real divide for people who are migrating from one space to another, right? If you think about African-Americans who are migrating to American cities and are fleeing, say, Lynch law in the South, they're certainly feeling that there's a difference between living in a wooden shack in Greenwood, Mississippi, and having a kind of community block, right, that is protecting them from, say, police brutality on the South side of Chicago or trying to. So, So in the minds of many people, there is a real divide. But I think it's also worth saying that this is a narrative, right? It's a narrative in American history that we roll out again and again and again to try to understand how there might be, you know, perceived differences or political divides or any number of other kind of segments of the population. But, you know, rural America is absolutely full of Native Americans, Latino migrants, African-Americans. Cities obviously are full of any number of different variations of white, right? Um, But we have these kind of hard boxes that we put people into as a way to explain election cycles, to explain, you know, culture wars and kind of popular commentary. Um, and, And sometimes these comparisons can be a little bit overblown.
4: I would say, Brian, to answer your question, two things. One, to start with the current day and think back, think about what we call urban music, which is euphemism for African American, and what we call country, which, which is euphemism you to by suburban white people. <laughs> but, that's, by the right. way. but 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 it's labeled <laughs> right. urban Absolutely. as black right. and country as white. Absolutely. But I think the main way this is built into American history is how do people North and South and east and west explain the Civil War. It's a industrial versus agrarian, right? Right. Which is just freaking crazy. <laughs> it was not industrial agrarian in any way, right. but it's a way of not using the S word when we're talking about the main courses of American history. W- would, would that be slavery, Ed? That would be the slavery <laughs> word. And but if you make it urban rural, right. Precisely because of this interpenetration we're talking about. So it's not to say that urban rural is not real. It is. It, it is to say that we like it because. It's a shorthand that allows us to obscure lots of other divisions that are a lot more divisive in American history. Mm -hmm. Coming up, we're going to hear how politicians have used the urban-rural divide to their own advantage. But first, a word from today's sponsor. We just
3: talked about how the urban-rural divide may be exaggerated or misleading. But in one respect, it's all too real. These days, it maps directly onto one of the longest-running fault lines in America between Republicans and Democrats. Just look at an electoral map from the 2016 election. It shows a sea of red rural voters punctuated by small islands of blue voters. They represent voters in America's metropolitan areas. Many liberal commentators, including MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell, have complained about the unfairness of the Electoral College.
6: Making those rural votes 20 times more powerful than urban votes. Yeah, and there's
4: another thing, something that's used by both political parties, that can tilt the scales in favor of white rural voters. That's gerrymandering. That's when political parties carve electoral districts that favor their own party at the expense of the others. So you have the Electoral College and gerrymandering. Those are well-recognized features of our electoral system. But 50 years ago, rural voters enjoyed a political advantage over urban voters for another reason, malapportionment. That's when certain residents have more political power than their numbers would suggest.
2: And we could point to almost any state in the nation by the mid-20th century. Virtually every state in the United States was malapportioned.
4: This is historian Doug
3: Smith. He says malapportionment emerged from the belief that rural voters somehow were just better than urban voters. That attitude was captured perfectly by a delegate to New York State's Constitutional Convention in 1894.
2: I say without fear of contradiction that the average citizen in the rural district is superior intelligence superior in morality, superior in self-government to the average citizen in the great cities. We could certainly see this as a extreme manifestation of it, but that was a, a mindset or an attitude that was quite prevalent in many citizens of rural and small-town America who saw the, the cities growing rapidly. It's immigration, people of uh, darker skin colors, different religions are flooding the United States corporations are are growing by leaps and bounds, factories, it's a whole different way of life, and on many different levels, it it can be
3: unsettling. Smith says even though malapportionment
2: violated the
3: principle of one person, one vote, it was actually perfectly legal.
2: The Constitution only requires that representation in the House of Representatives be based upon the census, but the Constitution doesn't specifically say anything about state legislatures. So in California, for instance, where I live, You had the state senate, uh, which was set up in such a way that residents of Los Angeles County, 6 million people had one state senator, and 14,000 residents of three rural counties up in the eastern side of the Sierra Mountains also had one state senator. So literally, if you were a voter in, in the rural eastern Sierra, you would have essentially 450 times the amount of political power as a resident of Los Angeles County in voting for the state senate. Let me ask you, Doug.
3: You know we're talking today about the urban-rural divide. Is one of the reasons that this notion that rural people are good people and honest people prevailed for so long, the fact that they had a louder voice in pretty prominent places like state legislators?
2: Well, I think that for a long time they had the power because they had the numbers. It was a rural country. It was a rural country, and, and – you know, we, we often talk about how it's the 1920 census that showed for the first time that a majority of Americans lived in urban areas. But at the time, you know, urban area, and that was defined as 2,500 people or more. I don't think a lot of us today would think of a, a community of three <laughs> or 5,000 people as urban. You know, the point being that for a long time, they did have the numbers and they did have the political power. And as you know, as a, as a political historian, to me, at the end of the day, what malapportionment is, really is about is about political power. And it's about Maintaining it, holding on to it, doing everything you can to try to, to maximize it.
3: Were there other interests that came to support malapportionment?
2: Well, I think certainly over time, business groups, chambers of commerce, manufacturing associations, all of those sorts of folks very much supported malapportionment insofar as it left control of the legislature in rural. And small town folks were seen as being more conservative on issues um, such as, you know, labor laws, taxation, et cetera, et cetera. So
3: even though those businesses largely were located in urban areas. Absolutely. They wanted a pliant, rural-dominated legislature. Absolutely. What are some examples of the consequences of malapportionment?
2: So, if you think about for a minute, the states that were most malapportioned, you essentially were in a, created a situation where a minority of, of residents, as few in some cases as, as 12 to 20 percent, could actually control the majority of a legislative body. And so, when you have that sort of form of minority control, it means that you can essentially veto almost any uh, measure put forward before the legislature. So, for instance, in Michigan, there was constant efforts at sort of uh, laws that would be seen as more favorable to workers, labor law, that business interests fought, or fair housing laws. So these laws. would be laws, for instance, on safety regulation. Safety, workplace. Or overtime, minimum wage, perhaps. Minimum wage. I mean, literally anything, any issue that comes before a state legislature or before the House of Representatives in the case of Congress is affected. Uh, in California, there's issues of, you know, water rights and whatnot that are that are affected. And in, in, we haven't talked at all about... The role that, that malapportionment plays in the perpetuation of segregation in Jim Crow, but certainly, you know, in, in Virginia, when Virginia passed its massive resistance laws. Massive it, resistance to uh, ensure that the schools were not integrated. Correct. Um, so when those laws were, were passed, you know, the, it's the rural areas of Virginia— that were most conservative, most committed to maintaining segregation that were overrepresented in Richmond as opposed to, you know, members of the legislature from Norfolk and Hampton Roads or Northern Virginia who were underrepresented. Doug, I have
3: a funny feeling the courts are going to break this logjam.
2: Absolutely. And the issue really does begin to metastasize almost in the the post-World War II period as urban areas continue to grow by leaps and bounds. And Urban officials uh, become increasingly frustrated with the you know, the inability to, to get adequate funding from the state legislature, whether it's for education or for roads or et cetera, et cetera. In November of 1960, the Supreme Court agrees to hear a case of Baker v. Carr, which comes out of Tennessee. The court was divided four to four. Potter Stewart, who was one of the newer justices, couldn't make up his mind and asked for it to be put over for re-argument, and it was re-argued in October of 1961. It ultimately was a 6-2 to decision, but Baker v. Carr only went so far as to say that the federal courts may consider whether or not malapportionment violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It did not set a standard. It did not address the specifics, but it did open the floodgates to a raft of lawsuits, and then finally, two years later, in June of 1964, the, the court announced its decision in, in the principle of one person, one vote, must govern apportionment of all state legislative bodies.
3: Yeah. Doug, I could read about malapportionment all day, but, you know, most people would say this is, you know, boring. Did, did <laughs> people actually care about
2: this? Oh, absolutely. And when the Supreme Court handed down its decisions in June of 1964 requiring population equality in both branches of the legislature. This was headlines in every newspaper, every news show, and it remained in the national consciousness for five years as states did begin to reapportion under court order. And eventually, by the by the late 1960s, uh, virtually every legislative body in the United States was based on equal population.
3: And does malapportionment still exist?
2: Literal malapportionment in terms of the way it existed prior does not. One thing that has happened— Uh, in the 50 years since, is that legislative bodies within a state or congressional districts within a state do have the same or almost the same number of people, you know, the same number as you can reasonably draw. No doubt, though, gerrymandering is linked. The New York Times in 1965 wrote this editorial where they referred to the twin evils of malapportionment and gerrymandering. And, And one of the things I like to point out is that at the time, in the late 50s, 60s, you know, the lawyers for plaintiffs and the Supreme Court, they weren't naive about gerrymandering. They understood that gerrymandering was an issue. But malapportionment was seen as being the far greater obstacle to democratic government. So once malapportionment is taken care of, then gerrymandering, of course, which had been around for a long time, becomes ever more important. So, you know, now you have to draw districts that don't make any sense in order to get the result that you want. Whereas before, you could just lump 10,000 people into one district and 100,000 into another. You didn't have to draw funny shapes. Right.
3: When the New York Times discussed the twin evils of malapportionment and gerrymandering, should they really have talked about triplets with the third child being the electoral college?
2: Well, that's a great question and obviously one that is especially prevalent today the New York Times did not, but just a couple years before that, and I think in January of 1961, uh, Edward R. Morrow on CBS did a, a, an hour-long special called The Election Day Illusions. They spent 30 minutes talking about malapportionment and 30 minutes talking about the Electoral College. Certainly, there was a sense wow. that, you know, these were two entities which stood in the way of true democracy. Now, of course, the one place, and this is an important one, where the Electoral College is different from malapportionment or gerrymandering is that the Electoral College is specifically written into the Constitution. And no matter how you feel about it, you can't get around the fact that that is very clear.
3: Doug, you've told such a compelling story. But could you step back and just explain to us what the greater significance of these legal cases is?
2: You know, Earl Warren at the end of his very distinguished career. Chief Justice. Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, who presided over the court from 1953 to 1969, he always said that the, the reapportionment decisions were the most important of his career. Most people expected him to say Brown versus Board of Education. And he said, no, even more than Brown, even more than any of the of the other major cases that they handed out to the reapportionment cases were the most important because at their root they addressed fundamental issues of democracy. Who is going to participate in our democracy? How much is each person's vote going to count? Right. How many does my vote count once and yours count ten times? At its most fundamental basic level, malapportionment and correcting malapportionment was about asserting the principle of majority rule in which every person has an equal vote.
3: Doug, thanks for joining us on Backstory Today.
2: My pleasure. Doug Smith is the
3: author of On Democracy's Doorstep the inside story of how the Supreme Court brought one person, one vote to the United States.
4: You know that's a really interesting interview, Brian. Uh, it certainly occurs to me that in the same way that we have political gerrymandering, in which basically people are talking to people just like themselves all the time, and in some ways, social media encourages that, it almost as if we have cultural gerrymandering. I mean, when's the last time you heard anything on a uh, major league talk show uh, that suggested anything other than urban? the whole thing feels like an inside joke that if you're a rural person, you're sometimes the butt of the joke. So I guess it seems to me that their gerrymandering principle of like being bounded off from like seems to be spreading across the country, and urban-rural divides one more example of it.
3: Ed, that's a terrific phrase, cultural gerrymandering, but I want to push back a little bit because, first of all, gerrymandering, of course, is a political term, and it means that the parties are intentionally drawing district lines to advantage them in partisan terms. I think in the last 20 or 30 years, what's really changed about political gerrymandering is it's become a lot easier because Americans more and more are choosing to live with ideologically like-minded people. And this is real change that's been documented by social scientists. To turn to cultural gerrymandering, I think the same phenomenon is going on. I I live in a farming area, a rural area, and people are self-selecting, choosing churches, choosing the kind of Christian music stations that they listen to. And this is not being imposed upon them. I get the FarmersOnly.com commercials. I haven't subscribed because I'm happily married. (laughs) But I I understand that I'm targeted by Madison Avenue because I live out in the country. But that targeting is responding to real cultural preferences
1: on the part of rural people and in turn on the part of urban people. Well, I I don't know how much you can talk about it in terms of preferences separate from this, these structures of you know space and of community I mean so much of what made rural rural and urban urban was this massive amount of space between communities right these crossing of the miles and those miles weren't accidents right you had redlining you had the distribution of land through homesteading that was certainly done on you know a racially asymmetrical basis you know so even the divides that we take to be kind of of nature are largely man-made and I think the same is true of these kind of you know social divides you know our communities are still kind of pre-selected in terms of our buying practices, our educational preferences, um, you know, our cultural practices, you know, in these larger clusters.
4: Yeah, Brian, Nathan, it strikes me that what we're seeing here is a mutually reinforcing system in which politicians are dividing things up that suit their purposes uh, under the guise of suiting the purposes of their constituents. Markets are dividing things up saying, we're giving you exactly what you want, which conveniently also makes it easier for us to find you with exactly the kind (laughs) of advertising that we want to find. So you have this situation where it feels like, okay, now finally— I find something that tells me exactly what I want to hear about myself, but the thing is that there are people benefiting from that, whether it's a a church congregation that no longer has to really worry about representing a broader point of view, or it's an XM radio station that doesn't really have to worry about diversity on its playlist. So I'm afraid that this just plays to too many people's advantage to really go away too easily. So— Ed or or Nathan,
3: might there be something even more sinister here? Uh, That's the possibility that should rural people and urban people come together around something they share in common. That's the divide in income between the 1% and the rest of the nation, for instance. Should they do that, uh, they might challenge a number of these established institutions that you've been talking about, whether it's the political party structure or marketers.
1: Well, I mean that's one of the things that I think really is a kind of common predicament for, you know, people who live in rural or urban America is is this sense of aggrievement, right? I mean, rural people feel, you know, that they're being ignored by the sophisticates in D.C. or New York. You have people who are living in, you know, downwardly mobile suburbs or in urban areas that are impoverished who certainly feel like, you know, the government is not on their side. Um, And that sense of marginalization, you know, does a lot to keep people feeling isolated. It certainly, you know, creates a kind of us-versus-them approach, even within the country itself. And I think, you know, it's sad to say that even if there aren't kind of smoke-filled rooms with people twirling their mustaches, Right. That there are a number of, you know, companies and political interests and, you know, lobbying groups that benefit profoundly from, you know, poor or even middle class Americans being divided along this division of urban and rural.
4: That's going to do it for us today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of this episode or ask us your burning history questions. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to backstory@virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at BackstoryRadio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
3: This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee,
4: Courtney Spania, Robin Blue, and Elizabeth Spage. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode comes from Pottington Bear and Katsuk. Special thanks this week to Christopher Merritt and to the studios at Johns Hopkins University.
1: Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And by History Channel, history made every day.
5: Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.